reading verses 13 to 36. So uh, let us draw near to hear. May we take heed how we hear. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by Him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of him, some of whom you killed and crucified, and some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, 
whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Every major religion in the world has an emphasis upon conduct. Certainly that's true in the Christian faith. But the Christian faith uh, is radically different in that conduct is, is not uh, salvific. It doesn't save anyone. Again, conduct in the Christian faith is not an, unimportant, uh, but the essence of the gospel is that God gives us new hearts, so He changes the heart, and that when we are changed from within, over time and in degree, our conduct is radically affected. Simply the difference between Christianity and every other major religion in the world. And absent the heart, conduct is meaningless before God not accepted. What God accepts is the conduct of His Son and the conduct of His Spirit working within us. The former works for us and the latter works in us. And that result is our conduct is radically different. Well, we continue our study with our Lord's uh, uh, last days, His ministry in the temple, Passion Week. Uh, so the crucifixion is drawing nearer. And as you know, the lawyers of Israel have come to interrogate him, to dispute him. It's really a radical irony that uh, the great lawgiver Christ, the author of the law, is now dealing with uh, the trifles of men who presume to know it, but they in fact do not. He knows it because he authored it. And he knows the grand picture of the law to turn our hearts to God uh, because of our inability to do all that the law requires of us. It's, uh, in a sense, a great preparation of the gospel. We read the law and we cry out in need and we turn to God. God works for us and within us. Uh, the text is uh, a lesson of the tragedy of religion, that it's superficial, that it evolves uh, over time into mere ritual, ethnic identity, uh, tradition, and bare profession. It's a warning to all of us that the chief way to God is in Christ who changes hearts. That's the Apostle Paul speaks to this in First Timothy, first chapter, the fifth verse. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. If you have those things, your conduct will follow, and you will be in good stead. The text contains seven woes matched by seven hypocrisies constituting seven indictments from seven causes. But again, it's remarkable to understand contextually Christ is in the temple uh, pouring out an indictment on those who have corrupted the temple. It's a way of man to corrupt. Everything that man touches corrupts. God changes hearts so that they become incorruptible. 
And essential to the indictments that are here, the seven woes, is the oft-repeated word that they were hypocrites. The word comes from the theater and the thespian, the actor. Literally, the word is to answer under, more picturesquely, to answer under a mask. In those days, have all the modern technology of our present-day actors, so they wore masks, and when they would speak, they'd have to lift up their mask, answer under a mask. At heart, an actor is playing a part that is not his true identity. The point is pretense. The actor is pretending. That's really the best that religion can do, pretend. And what religion over time begins to do in their pretense is to uh, add to the law. Add to God's Word. Uh, we do that in Christianity. Back in the 40s and 50s, uh, a woman was scorned if she wore makeup. You know that prohibition in Scripture, don't you? <laughs> well, it's not there. But the point is, God needs our help, doesn't He? Don't we need to protect women and morality so they, they can't wear I mean, whatever it is? I call it subterfuge. My wife tricked me. No, she's innately beautiful, but she didn't have to wear makeup. But again, we, we think we have to add to the Word of God to protect men and women. Whatever you add becomes uh, an event of corruption because at heart, God doesn't need our help to establish the point of the law which is meant to turn our hearts to Him. It's the whole point of the commandments. Uh, God help me in my unbelief. And God is the author of belief and the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's the way of man. It's certainly true in contemporary Judaism with all of their traditions and uh, the Talmud uh, trying to set a hedge about the law of God. But again, God doesn't need our hedges. He's quite capable of doing His own work on His own. So let's uh, look at uh, seven occasion in which we have religious conduct that's absent the heart. And uh, that is the lesson for you this morning if you have uh, found your way in church and you're not a Christian and, and you're trying to please God. It's a worthy goal, but it's also an impossible goal. I can tell you a measure of my own testimony. Uh, not to bore you, but I remember struggling in like manner trying to please God, and a man shared a verse, Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. In a moment, I learned that I was incapable of doing it, and that all that I did was not acceptable before God. The point of the text is to turn us to God who changes our hearts, and Jesus Christ is Lord of the heart. It's the essence of the gospel. God changes hearts. Uh, verse 13 uh, is the first charge. You close off the kingdom of heaven. Their system of law and their additions to law uh, prevented entrance into the kingdom. It became so burdensome. Come unto me, Jesus says, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. They were just simply laden down with the burden of the law. Jesus says, come to me. I'll render satisfaction. 
essence of this again in the Gospels, John chapter 10, uh, seven, uh, verses 7 and 9. Uh, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Again, the law turns us to the entrance, and Christ is the entrance. He's the door. You want to enter the kingdom of God? You must go through Him. There's no other way. There's no other door. You want the pasture of God? You want to be fed? Again, goes through Christ. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through Me, he shall be saved doesn't say that your conduct is the door. Again, I'm not unmindful of Christian conduct. The Bible is full of reminders of the importance of conduct, but ultimately is is illustration of the heart that's been changed by him who is the door. Uh, and she'll go in and out and find pasture. The grace of God. Yeah. He becomes what we could not do because of the fallenness of our hearts. Second, verse 15, they were zealous for proselytes. I don't know of any religion who isn't zealous for proselytes. Uh, Certainly in the church, it's the sharing of the Gospel for men and women, boys and girls to come to Christ and be united faithfully to the church of Christ. Uh, But the point of this text in their zeal for proselytes is they were recruiters for their own cause and not Christ. And the moment you absent Christ, all religion is vacuous and utterly empty. Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, they, they have a zeal for God, but zeal absent knowledge. That's all it was, was zeal. Zeal is not salvific. Zeal in and of itself is not an indication that the truth is present. All of us know people that are profoundly religious, but who don't know Christ. And therefore their zeal is utterly meaningless. You know they might uh, learn from Martin Luther, who was deeply troubled about the estate of his soul. So the captain of his order says, well, go to Rome. You'll find it in Rome. Gets on his knees and climbs the stairs, the great church. Really? That's how you get to God? Human stairs? Christ is the ladder. Christ is the door. I mean, all these rubbings of beads. And uh, My favorite is uh, my good friend, Alan Charlotte McCartney, she used to have a a prayer wheel. Uh, It's hard to pray, isn't it? It's difficult. So this is prayer wheel. You just turn it around. All your prayers are sending up into heaven because you've got this element in your hand. And, And I guess if you do so many recitations, you can have peace in your heart because of this prayer device. That's the way of man. How empty is that? In and of itself, it tells you that it's vacuous. I mean, God impressed because our wrists work? 
that He's the Creator of? Way of man. Find some aspect of doing that draws us closer to Himself. When in the Christian faith, the order is He draws close to us in Christ. And then in Christ, we have peace with God. I mean, I will tell you that absent Christ, the church, is just another meeting. As if we don't go to enough meetings in our daily lives as it is. The point is Christ. Third, verses 16-22, to they had a system of oaths in which only the right words were binding. They crafted you had just the right order for an oath to be binding. If you didn't have the exact right order, you were unbound. It's like the child telling the truth with his finger crossed behind his back, or really telling a lie because he crossed his fingers behind his back. I mean, you know the old phrase, really, in and of itself, it's telling the gospel, cross my heart, hope to die. You know what follows that? Stick a needle in my eye. In other words, I don't fall through on my oath, you stick a needle in my eye. It's exactly the point of the gospel uh, we're liars, but Christ was pierced through for our transgressions that we might live. Jesus tells us that all oaths are binding, and therefore we should be careful because we bring God into the matter. Be very careful about using the name of God in any of your language because it becomes binding. Recall we've looked at this previously, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 34, Jesus is uh, trashing their oaths. I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for heaven is the throne of God. And once you mention God's name, you have bound your conduct. And all of us know how difficult it is not to remain true to an oath. told this story before, but reminds me of my own folly. Fishing in the Gulf of Mexico, I hooked a sailfish. Go through the initial four or five jumps. Oh God, if I catch this fish, I'll serve you. I'm so glad I never caught it. Again, our service sometimes is never enough, is it? Very careful about your oaths and making promises because you, you bind yourself. Once you place God's name upon your oath, be very careful because heaven now is watching your conduct in the throne of God. Fourth, verse 23 to 24. Again, we're looking at conduct that is that of religion, but it's absent the heart. Eventually, it... Uh, evolves into utter ruin because conduct saves no one. Verses 23 to 24, their system of tithing was full of minutiae. <laughs> only, only man can do this, but we do it as an art form, do we not? I, I know of churches that, uh, again, I understand churches have budgets, I understand we need money, and I, I just 
as you know, if you've been at Grace Bible Church at any period of time, that uh, take our offering after the service and don't make a big to-do over it. I simply believe that if God ministers to you, that in the freedom of your own heart, you'll render a measure of expression of devotion. But I know of churches that pass out tithing cards. You turn them in, they put your name on a roll. I mean, you're not meeting your debt obligation. You're going to get a phone call. Again, I understand. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong in of itself. I just think it's a wrong order. Do the right things, and people will do the right things. Focus the church upon the right things, and you don't have to go beating people up. I mean, heaven knows, maybe they lost their job. Maybe they got a demotion. I mean, I don't know. Heaven knows, that's enough. Preach the Scriptures. God will move in people's hearts without becoming overtly legalistic. System of tithing. The herbs that are listed, verses 23 to 24, were those <laughs> that were found in a small garden. As if, oh, you've got a garden, do you? Well, you better tithe 10% of that, brother. <laughs> I don't know, it's just kind of bizarre, but that's the way of the conduct of men is trying to establish rules of holiness. Ladies, doing all the sewing, are you? The church wants 10. Better own up or we'll, we'll run you to ground. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this, the law of tithing, of course, embraced agriculture, but it embraced the industry of agriculture. I mean, Deuteronomy 14.22 talks about fields and the sowing of fields, not some garden at home or some hobby you have. It's a way of man. Jesus illustrates the principle here with a gnat and the camel. Both were unclean. Much of the ceremonial law was that of rendered you unclean, to turn you to the sacrificial system. In the Gospel, the sacrificial system ultimately points to Christ. You're cleansed by Christ. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're declared not guilty in Christ. Not innocent. None of us are born innocent. But we're declared by the grace of God to be not guilty in Christ. Everything else is a sham. It's a pretense. But you know the story. I mean, you've been there. You're outside and you've got your lemonade. It's a hot day and you're cooking something on the grill and a gnat gets in your lemonade. Oh, horrors. So you take your dirty, greasy hands and you try to dig it out and... and process, of course, you probably ought to throw the lemonade away, but you just go to great efforts to get that gnat out. It's swimming in the lemonade and just everyone's grossed out. But in the process, you swallow a camel. It was also an unclean animal. We go to all this minutia, but it's the big point of the law. The law teaches us to love God. And the law teaches us about, about the provision of God. The provision of God in the Old Covenant was the sacrificial system that in and of itself pointed to Christ. The bigger picture, love. And that God loved us first. And that God loved us to the end. 5th verses 25 and 26, their emphasis was on the outer man and ceremonial precision. Christ says, you know, clean the 
inside of the cup, outside, all of us can adorn ourselves. We can you know, wake up and fix the outside. Not the outside, that's the problem before God. It's the heart. I love, I love verse 25 of this chapter. We, we looked at this last week. But they all do their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels on their garments. As if God is impressed with what we wear. It's a perversion of the faith. I'm not unmindful that there are references in the Scripture to what we wear. Be modest in your clothing and your jewelry. But that's not the point. That's not salvific. They thought it was. Two things to impress. I remember, again, referencing a good friend, recently departed, Al McCartney, said he went to Israel one year and in the airport, and here was this glass uh, uh, cage, so to speak, and some point walking by, a guy gets up there and begins to take off his outer clothing and adorn himself with the religion of Israel, as if, really, who cares that you, you know, your tassel is bigger than someone else's? I mean, that's the way of our culture, isn't it? We're so visual. Uh, particularly in uh, the high school ages, we're all concerned about what label you have on your trousers or your blouse, or uh, perhaps someone is impressed by the maker of your handbag. And so you get depressed and go buy a counterfeit one so people will be impressed by you. It's a way of man. God's not impressed with any of that because we do it. And what we do is easily, easily corruptible and easily counterfeited and your neighbors may notice, but God doesn't. Matters to heart. The point of the phylacteries and the tassels were to remind the Israelite to be loyal to the law of God. And that in and of itself is driven by the essence of the new covenant. I can think of no law on the hygiene of everyday dishes in the old covenant. You know, they, they made everything aspect of, of uh, outer conduct to impress people. In other words, they were scrupulous on so many non-essentials. That disease, by the way, has crept into the American church. Uh, my way or the highway. We take non-essentials and elevate them to essentials. Just simply the way of man. If you don't do it exactly like the way I do it, then you're not uh, you're not sanctified. Six verses twenty seven twenty eight. They practice extreme care to keep from being defiled. Uh, the great pilgrim feast. The pilgrims would go to Jerusalem, and they were very wary of being defiled on the way, so that tombs were whitewashed. Uh, to mark them out so that a pilgrim would not inadvertently uh, become defiled because then he had to go practice a measure of, of a ceremony to render himself clean and therefore he might miss the entire uh, pilgrim feast. 
Again, all of a reminder to, uh, to the heart. Turn our hearts. Uh, I love the hymn, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Praises. That's what we need, is God working upon the heart. Uh, Jesus says religious appearance and adornments are never the issue. One of the great dangers in much of the American church, we have all these uh, prescribed liturgies and books that take us through prescribed liturgy. I'm not against that per se, but be very, very careful if you miss the heart. Uh, all types of adornments. I remember when we purchased the church here, I, uh, the sacristy had all these drawers of, you know, forgive me, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, I call them uniforms. When I was in the army, there were kajillion uniforms. I always look at the training schedule. Class A uniform today, buddy. Class B uniform. Uniform doesn't sanctify you. God does. I was struck here, again, a reminder to me that obviously in Roman Catholicism, uh, the Mass is said on every Sunday and uh, the Spirit of God is present in the host when a little light is turned on. Oh, really? <laughs> I wish it was so easy. Just go flip a switch and the Spirit of God is present in the host. It's something that man does. But we do that in the evangelical church. Revival. The week of August 5 through 10. Really? I can tell God when He's to show up <laughs> to intensify His presence in the life of the church. Again, I'm not throwing rocks at churches that do that. It just kind of reminds me that ought we not to be praying for the Spirit of God to show up? And the point of revival is the intensity of the Spirit who comes oftentimes first to the church to quicken it and then to the lost. And only God can do that in the Spirit. Who cares what my signs say? And my signs don't tell God when to show up. The cry of the heart on every Sunday morning that ought to emanate from your house, Oh God, I'm going to church. I will be present. Would in your grace that you would come. Because absent the train of your glory, I'm just going through the motions. And that's what we need. The intensity of the Spirit of the living God. I trust on Sunday mornings you are engaged in such a manner that God would turn our hearts to sing His praise. Lastly, verse 29 to 36, they pretend to honor the martyrs, but they were the sons of the killers. Soon they will kill Jesus. This is the point, I think. Again, I'm not against... Righteous conduct it has a great role in terms of Christian doctrine, life of the church, but it's important to understand Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. You will know them by their fruits. Uh, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, uh, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. If God doesn't change the root, 
the fruit's never going to change. That's the point of the gospel. God changes the root. Makes the tree different. So we bear forth uh, righteous fruit. In and of itself, not even it is salvific. Because we're not saved by our works. We're saved by His work. Our works are evidence of salvation and the work of the Spirit within us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 5th verse. They have a form of religion, but they deny its power. That's the entire essence of the gospel. People can, you know, I can wear a cross. I can go tattoo, well, I can't, but I can go to a tattoo parlor and get one tattooed on, I don't know, wherever, my heart, my neck, my hands. I can do that, but that doesn't change the inner man. What God does changes hearts. I can have the form of religion. I can wear all the vestments, the uniforms, and say the right things, and I can uh, light the incense. And uh, remember, when my son went to uh, Eastern Orthodox Church and came home, and uh, I, I, I read what he learned. He he learned that uh, you can see God in the artwork in the church. And, oh, really? That's pretty impressive. See God in the artwork. Uh, you could eat God in the sacraments. You could smell Him in the incense. Really? Smell God in the incense. Isn't it interesting how we self-define how God manifests Himself? I understand there was incense in the Old Covenant. Reminder of the prayers of the saints ascending to the glory of God of our need for God to work. So, conduct is uh, important, but absent the heart, it's utterly meaningless and eventually will evolve into a very crass, crude, rejected form of religion. That's the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes who ruled over the temple that belonged to God. God is present in Christ. They're arguing with Him, and so He's going to tear the temple down. Point of the last text in this, this sermon. Let's look at right conduct as a matter of the heart. Internal to our very context here is, is an emphasis on uh, the work of God who affects internal change. And what follows is the doing, the doing of the love of God and love of neighbor. Last week, verses 8 to 10, we learned that Ultimately, God is our teacher. He instructs us. He teaches us by His Spirit. The internal ministry of the Word of God. God becomes our teacher in the Spirit. And that's how we learn Christian faith. I'm not undermining that there are appointed uh, teaching elders in the life of the church. They teach, but ultimately they're validating the internal ministry of the Spirit of God who teaches us. Isn't it interesting in America we have a crisis of education? Not in the true church of God. There's no crisis because God is the teacher. God is the consummate teacher. He's the efficacious teacher. He turns back no exams with C-minuses. 
He teaches, we learn. Because he's efficacious in the role of teacher. What a great reminder of the grace of God. All of us need to be taught. Behind all of our human teachers, behind parents, behind Sunday school teachers, behind teaching elders, all who are apt to teach, is the majesty of God teaching his church. He teaches, we learn, and never forget. So many uh, denominations uh, call their priests fathers. Christ says, you have one father, father in heaven, he's your provider. And he provides for his sons. I love the last one. We have a need for a leader. Uh, all these different titles in churches. Uh, again, reminded me of the army. Sergeants and lieutenants and majors and generals. Uh, curates. I mean, I don't even know all the titles. There's so many of them. Jesus says, look, you have one leader, that is Christ. Think of the majesty of that. If he's our leader, we cannot be lost. John chapter 6 and verse 10, he's the great shepherd of the sheep. He leads his sheep. Goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's our leader. <laughs> we can't be lost. Begin to focus upon what man does, you're going to be lost. Point of the grace of God given to us. So, again, contextually we have a reminder of the work of God that precedes the work of man. The divine conduct precedes human conduct. Conduct is a matter of the triune God engaging each of these elements in our lives. Isn't that the essence of the new covenant? If you have your Old Testament, I trust you do, the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Israel had failed under the old covenant. Utterly failed. Well, God never fails, so he comes. Old covenant really was to point to the new, and he affects a new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God does the heart surgery. God changes it. God fixes it. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. By the way, did you catch the subject that was repeated? I. Did you catch the future tense? I will. When God makes a promise, it's going to happen because he's the subject. He cannot fail in what he promises. I fail every time I promise. God knows no failure, brooks no failure. He puts the seal of the certainty upon it. I will take away their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. By the way, it's a reference, I think, to idolatry that destroys the heart. Puts his spirit within us. And now we have the gospel. And now we have the provenance and the genesis of true Christian conduct. God changes the heart. 
Uh, this is nothing more than the reality of the lesson that we've already studied, is it not, in the Sermon on the Mount? Let's look at a couple of those elements of the Sermon on the Blessed is the man. And what follows is the character of the man of God. The character, not conduct. Because once you have character, conduct is uh, going to follow. Character of the man of God in any age. By the way, you understand one of the tragedies of American education? It's all about doing. Proper education is pointing man to being character. Once you have character, you're going to be a great employee. I mean, I can teach someone to use Excel. What I can't teach them is to show up on time and to keep their promises. That's a matter of character. That is what God changes in our hearts. The beauty and the majesty of the gospel that he does it. Blessed is the man could be translated successful is the man or the woman or the boy or the girl in the sense he's on the right way to God. Interestingly enough, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's no mention there of liturgy, uniforms, ritual, vestments. A key is the poverty of spirit. Blessed is the man of poor in spirit. What does that mean? The man or the woman who recognizes that we have a desperate need for the grace of God to sustain us every day. That every day is a day of incredible spiritual danger. Oh God, keep me this day by your grace, not by my works. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. The cry of the heart, desperately in need for God, the poverty of spirit, evidence that God has worked there. Successful is the man or the woman who hungers and thirsts after righteousness in terms of the ethical demands of king and kingdom. It's like the British Navy, HMS, Her Majesty's Service. Easy to paint that, I suppose. I trust it's truly in Her Majesty's Service. But our hearts are to be in the service of God. God affects a change from within that we are made righteous by Christ and there comes a craving for righteousness that is inherently our own that speaks to a determined pursuit. When God does heart surgery, He radically changes our interests. It's a great picture of this in Philippians uh, chapter 3. It ought to speak to a measure of all of our hearts. Uh, Paul has been ransacking his ritual conduct as a Pharisee and tearing down his trophy case. Look what he replaces it with, verse 9, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Our desires define us, do they not? The desire of every Christian is conformity to Christ. Mark of the Christian. I think of how we've perverted our young people in America. Every six months, desire a new app on your phone. Every six months, desire a new phone. Every six months, desire a new 
a new dress, a new coat, a new whatever. When God changes us, he changes our desires to pursue him. You don't want to know what that looks like? I'll tell you what it looks like. 40-second song. Expression. What it looks like to have a heart being turned to Christ. David has been driven out of the city of Jerusalem. He's deeply saddened as the deer pants for the water brook. So my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's the greatest tragedy in his life. He's been driven out of the city where God localized his presence. And he wants to go back where God manifests his presence in the Holy of Holies. How to speak to a measure of our hearts as the deer pants for the water brook. So our souls ought to pant for the knowledge of God. Again, the inner man is the, is the foundation. Another great interplay of uh, the inner man, its relationship to the outer man, is captured by the Apostle Paul, the second chapter of the book of Philippians. If you have your New Testaments, and I trust you do, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, I hope you do not go away thinking that uh, I'm against Christian conduct. Quite the opposite. Just reminded that Christian conduct is coupled uh, to a changed heart. It's expressed beautifully for us this morning in Philippians chapter 2, Verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's an imperative, stressing, continuous action. Don't just work it out one time. Keep working it out in fear and trembling. Incredible reverence because our lives uh, are in the gaze of an eternal God who beholds the inner man, the heart. The context is the majesty accorded Christ at His coming, given His work as servant, establishes the necessity of ethical demands that are placed upon us. Because He will come and lay everything bare. Nothing will be hidden from His sight. Well, that kind of stirs you to reverence, to cry for grace, It's no isolated work. Continually work it out. Contextually, the word for salvation is the entirety of the way of God referencing, I think, our sanctification. There's a couple of references to that in the following verses. Verse 14, we're not to be complainers. Backdrop the nation of Israel. Continually complaining about God on the way to the promised land. Oh, golly, God, you brought us out here to kill us. What's the big deal? Wish we'd have never left. Oh, the leeks and garlics in Egypt were so great, and what do we get? What's with quail every day? What's with water? Can we not get a little bit of, uh, 
I don't know, what it is we put all this stuff in our water today? Be very careful, ladies and gentlemen, about complaining because it may cast aspersion upon the providence and the goodness of God and all of the blessings he showers upon you. We have taken complaining in America to an art form that I think is unprecedented in the history of civilization. It's different in the life of the church because of the grace of God. It causes us to control our tongues, I trust. God's goodness. Another way that we work out our salvation, verse 16, we hold forth the word of life, the gospel. So that working out our salvation or sanctification embraces all the means of grace, as in prayer, devotions, partaking of the sacraments, and the fellowship of the saints, to name a few. But notice something in the text, and that is the 13th verse. Work out your salvation, fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you to will and to work as His good pleasure. The primacy of God working within, and therefore we work out. If God isn't working within, we'll never work out, and everything that we work out will be utter religious corruption. It's a great promise in and of itself, inherent in the gospel, that God works within so that we can work without. And that our working without is evidentiary, that He is working within us. I come to church not to meet some slavish schedule or religious calendar. I come to work because God in His Spirit is working within me to go to the appointed place where He localizes and sometimes intensifies His presence. And I long to see that in the saints of God. We work out because He works within. That what is seen in my religious conduct is caused by the unseen work of God's grace. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees are flunking. What we need to recover in the life of Grace Bible Church. And that God is working within us according to His sovereign good pleasure. For it is God who's worked within us to will and do of His good pleasure. We're all different. We all bring different gifts, different talents. I'm so glad that Shanita sang Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Because you know what? If I had sung it, there would have been a mass exodus. I just simply don't have the gift that she had. I don't mean to draw attention to her, but oh, so many of the men and women are gifted singers. Our church. I'm not counted among them. And so I don't envy them. Because I don't have to. God gives us all different gifts and we ought to be satisfied with the work that He is doing within us and intensify in prayer and the cry of the heart. Oh God, work more that I might be all the more conformed to Thy glorious Savior. Absent God working in, we can only pretend and play at the faith. The causal link establishes the work of God in the enabling power for the outworking. It is the difference between form and reality. It's a great reminder of this in Philippians chapter 1. The essence of the gospel. Paul says in verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So they're participating with Paul in the gospel advancement. And then notice the internal work of God. For I am confident of this very thing, that who began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. When God begins, He finishes. 
When God gives us new hearts, He's going to change conduct over time and in degree. Majesty of the grace of God. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who starts it will finish it. Praise God. It's the majesty of the gospel. So the priority is not what I can wear, tattoo, rings on my fingers, crosses around my neck. I'm not against someone when I wear a cross, but I'll tell you this, be very careful if you're wearing a cross because you're drawing attention to your conduct. You might offend someone if you let loose a string of words that might cast aspersion on the cross that you're wearing. Just think of the cross that saves you, giving you a new heart. Again, I'm not against those external forms. I just simply leave that to the freedom of your own conscience. just want to be very careful about what I advertise to the world. And may in God's grace, may I advertise a broken spirit, pursuit of the righteousness because of the righteous work that He started within me that He will perfect and finish. Well, I'm not trying to downplay the external manifestations of the faith, but the starting point is the heart and the inner man. Great application here from a wise man who once said, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Every issue of your life is a manifestation of the heart. If you're a Christian, it will be a right. If you're not, God will simply turn His back. And so if you're not a Christian, go to God and ask Him to change your heart. The starting point is the cross. May God be gracious to you. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Jesus changes hearts. Absent this, the external, the ritual, the uniforms, the prayer wheels, the rubbing of beads, crawling on your knees, whatever it is, praying to statues is meaningless and prejudicial. So my prayers for each of us at Grace Bible Church is that more and more our hearts would pant for God and we would be satisfied with work of Father, Son, and Spirit. And that satisfaction would grow It's the greatest of all evidences that we are God's sons and blessed sons we are.